The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guests' own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of AIHA. AIHA does not endorse any guest or the entity that they represent. On this episode of Healthier Workplaces, Climate Change and OEHS Challenges with guests Sadie Daffer and Doug Fallon. Start implementing change if they have a passion for it or um, if they even just care a little bit. It's something that's going to affect us all long term. And so uh, making proactive efforts every day starting now, it's going to be beneficial in the long run. I was a student, somebody helped me. I think it's my responsibility now that I found some success in this profession to help others. In my opinion, you can't see yourself as successful if you're not helping other people. We as industrial hygienists, EHS professionals, need to give back to secure that students are well prepared and supported in their educational endeavors. Look at it as paying it forward. Somebody helped me get to where I am so I'm helping others to achieve their dreams. We all have to make sacrifices in life, but this is a gift that we can take pride in giving back through the foundation. Opening doors, it's that basic. It's easy for us to open doors and usher future EHS professionals along the path that we traveled when we were students. Sit back and think about the start of your industrial hygiene journey. How many people help you get to where you are now? How expensive was school back then and how much more expensive it is now? Now think about how your giving will go into investing into that next CIH or EHS professional. Lead by example. Some folks helped me get to where I am, so I'm just doing my part. And it feels good to know that I'm contributing to the future of our profession. The foundation makes it easy in so many ways to make a gift. And I've seen firsthand how my giving has been appreciated by students. So do your part, give back. So Doug and Sadie, thanks for joining us today on the Healthier Workplaces show. Um, talking about a subject that's near and dear to me, climate change, and how that might be affecting or how it should be affecting uh, OEHS professionals, right? So that, that's really uh, the crux of our topic today. Um, welcome, both of you. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. So I, I guess get right into it. Um, you know, we're dealing with, you know, a substantial amount of issues relating to climate change is that, you know, uh, somewhat accelerating and it's certainly a, a problem that's immediate and, uh, you know, very important that we deal with. How, how, how does that um, how is that something that an occupational environmental health and safety person should be looking at and dealing with? And how, how should that be affecting them? Uh, and I'll, I'll pose that to both of you. Um, uh, so, Doug, I'll let you go first since you're at the top of the picture. Sure. Yeah, I think um, to me, the, the biggest part of it for OH, OEHS professionals, as far as what we can and should be doing to you know address the hazards of climate change is, you know, I think first and foremost, becoming aware of what those are, um, you know, so that may require, you know, additional knowledge or in increasing your knowledge on those hazards and understanding how they are going to affect, you know, workers and your employees um, to make sure that you have, you know, the knowledge 
skill set and resources to address those hazards because i think that's something that um climate change is is constantly you know it's in the name it's changing so you know for those of us who work at relatively you know stagnant work sites maybe manufacturing or you know production where generally you're dealing with the same types of hazards on a daily basis you know i think that's one of the challenges of climate change is that it's it's going to be introducing new hazards or it's going to be making things that maybe are are a lower priority now into a, a higher priority as they worsen so i think that's really the, the key part is is understanding what's coming and then making sure you're prepared for it i mean this is certainly a moving target so uh it makes it even I guess in that regard, it's more complex because while we, we do have somewhat of a picture of what to expect and so, some of the things that we may be facing, it's still there's so, still some uncertainty. And, and certainly as far as the timeline, there's still a little bit of uncertainty. So, Sadie, um, thoughts on that? Um, you know, again, we're just we're, we're looking at the 10,000 foot overview here before we get into the deep uh, part of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like Doug answered the question really well. It's just modifying um, what you're currently doing in your workplace to look ahead and see what could be potentially impacting you um, in the future. And one of the things that we've discussed is a lot of these issues are have already affected certain regions and they are spreading to new areas. And so thankfully there's some resources out there for people, but making sure they have access to that information, they know where to go and, um, get the best um, like knowledge experts advice and can make those adaptions as they come up or before they come up, which would be even better. In the pre-show, uh, we spoke about the uh, three uh, three specific target areas uh, that environmental, occupational health and safety should be uh, dealing with as far as climate change. First being chemical, second being biological, and third being physical. So Sadie, I'll let you uh, just tell us a little bit more about the chemical aspects uh, involved with climate change. Yeah, so there are several. Um, the first one I think most people think of is wildfire smoke and how that um, affects the workplaces. I worked for um, the Corps of Engineers um, a few years ago back when I think there's still an issue right now, but uh, we were dealing with some of the wildfires um, affecting our dams and the smoke. Um, just the hazard of employees working outdoors and then um, what to do about the ventilation um, impacting the buildings in that area that were affected. Um, I have a list over here, if you don't mind, so I'm just kind of reading off of it. Um, additional chemical issues, it's more uh, hazardous material releases. So with the increase in flooding that we're seeing happening globally, there's uh, more rainfall, there's more impact to the um, wastewater system. And so that is, uh, could potentially affect and spread different chemicals throughout the water system um, as they come into contact with agricultural industries, chemical industries, and things of that nature. Um, indoor air quality issues. So there's gonna be a lot of, of course, new green chemicals introduced that will need to be researched and see what their long-term impact is. Um, as we try to create substitutes for some of the chemicals that we're already using in our homes and our workplaces and in general industry. So um, they could potentially be harmful. We don't know because of course they're gonna be new and we'll have to have more research for those. So those are probably the top three um, chemical hazards that we think are gonna be big and overall affect 
unchanged. And certainly there's the biological hazards. Um, um, you know, I think we just came off experiencing probably the one of our lifetime, right? The uh, mm -hmm. pandemic, uh, which at least has by many been attributed in part at least to uh, some of the climate change aspects, uh, you know, creating this opportunity for, um, you know, this virus to jump, you know, from the animal to the uh, human kingdom. And however, however that actually happened, whether it was a laboratory yep. or, you know, whatever drove it, um, it still has a lot to do with it. So Doug, uh, some of these, let's talk about the vectors and some of the other stuff with the biological uh, aspects. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot there. Um, you know, so you brought up a great example of, of COVID, you know, potentially being, you know, from from a, a human wild animal interaction that maybe wouldn't have occurred without some climate change pressures. I think we're going to continue to see that as um, you know, especially as populations are affected by climate change and they have to either move or adapt their way of you know living and um, and working to deal with those new pressures. You know, I, I think challenges are always going to come out of that, um, and that may be new infectious disease like we saw with COVID. Um, you know, you've also got a lot of vector-borne illnesses that are a concern. It, it does seem like insects like it warm. And so as, you know, temperatures change and, and the average temperature, you know, increases in many places, it creates more hospitable climate for, you know, multiple vectors, you know, comes to mind ticks and, and mosquitoes are two pretty main ones. You know, I think there's always the, the old, the joke that the most deadly animal in the world is, is a mosquito. Um, and so as, as the climate changes, they can spread their range further. And generally, if it's the same type of mosquito, it's going to carry the same you know, diseases. Um, and then another one I think of is, is waterborne illness. As Sadie said, as we have more severe weather and especially flooding events, you know, those often impact um, drinking water supplies. Uh, so we, there's always an opportunity there for you know, waterborne and even foodborne illness from those events. Yeah, and we're certainly, you know, it, there's going to be no shortage of these things. I mean, you just look at the last several years, uh, it seems everything's compounding a bit and uh, mm -hmm. things seem, seem to be accelerating. Um, and I mean, based at least based on what I'm seeing, seeing it seems like this, I, I don't see it getting better <laughs> in the near future. Um, you know, we, I don't know if there is a, is a path for us to actually really uh, stop what we've started. But, um, yeah, that, mm -hmm. it's it's going to be challenging. And I think, you know, certainly the SARS-CoV-2, um, you know, pandemic, that's, that's not, I don't believe that's going to be the last. I mean, thoughts on that? I think it's unfortunately maybe uh, what's more to come. I mean, I, my thought is, and I'll offer an optimistic thought is because I think you're right. I think, you know, most of the public health authorities would say we're going to be seeing these more often, but, you know, most organizations have a really well, hopefully really well developed, really well exercised plan somewhere in their, you know, database right now. And so what I would say is we just had really good practice at it for three years and let's not lose all those lessons learned, you know, get that documented, get it uh, figured out and, you know, keep it fresh for the next time it's needed. But see, that, that's a good point you're making there because human nature, at least at least what I've seen in our lifetime, is that we have a tendency to have very short memories, and our our attention span seems to be you know very ADHD for you know for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, in general, that I'm not saying that for for professionals necessarily. I'm saying in general the general public, and uh, you know so how how does the uh, you know the health and safety community. Um, 
drive this point this point forward you know that you know we need to maintain preparedness this is this is not maybe not a once-off event and this is something that you know we we really need to learn from and be better prepared for i mean how, how do we approach that and i'll put that out to both of you yeah um, i can go for me i think we saw like a really good emergence of safety and occupational health professionals getting to shine in their profession with all the issues coming up um because we do have a level of expertise and that's our job to share it and make sure that it's um, people are informed, not just in our workplaces, but in the world. So I think we got to showcase, especially from like a public health sector of what we actually do and who we actually are, even though it was, um, you know, very dire situation, it still, um, it was possible to work through those issues because there are people that are trained in those topics. So it, um, it's kind of a weird way of getting some good PR and hopefully some more professionals interested in public health overall. I mean, cer certainly I think professionals in general, you know, in the uh, occupational environmental health and safety, I think did a stellar job. Uh, I think many would, would criticize that some of the uh, governmental agencies, at least in the United States and maybe worldwide too. I mean, there, there's a lot of critiques on uh, how WHO handled this um, maybe didn't do so well, you know, and, and as far as, uh, engaging with the general public and, and, and getting timely information, credible timely information out in, a, in, a, in a, that sort of fashion. Um, and and I, I mean, are, do either of you see any, uh, any ways that maybe we could be better at that going forward, you know, overall? I mean, I think, I think I probably sound like a, you know, broken record, but I think risk communication is, is always an incredible challenge. I think there were probably a lot of lessons learned during the pandemic that will hopefully be, you know, learned and passed on. But, um, you know, I, the times where I saw the biggest loss of public trust were when, when we gave absolutes, you know, when, like I'll take the vaccines, for example, you know, when, when the vaccines were first implemented, I think maybe not 100%, but it was general, you know, discussion that they prevented transmission. And that later turned out to not be true. And, and I think largely it was not true because of the way, you know, the virus changed, not necessarily any false information on any government's part. But I think that I think was a big lesson learned was that even if you're doing your utmost and being honest and upfront as much as you can with the information you have at the time, if it later turns out to be wrong, it's going to be hard to, to win back that trust. So I, you know, it's a it's a very tough balance because you you want to be as transparent and open as you can, but you also need to be sensitive to the fact that if 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 it's wrong, if we get it wrong, you know, we're going to have a lot of ground to make up. So I think as much as you can communicate your uncertainty when you are communicating the things you believe to be true, um, I think that's a big lesson moving forward. I mean, that's certainly the nature of a virus anyway, though. Um, you know, yeah. certainly uh, they do evolve. They evolve rapidly. And um, yeah, I, I guess the general public is a is a tough group <laughs> to, you know, to keep engaged and, and, and try to, you know, I guess, disseminate evolving information in such mm -hmm. a way they understand it. everybody seems to, again, talking about, you know, the general population tends to look at sound bites. We tend to, learn, you know, listen to things in very small snippets without really, truly understanding a topic. Most people don't spend the time to delve into it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, that's a challenge. 
Uh, you have any anything else on that, Sadie, on, on that point? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like just like you said, it's very difficult when these scientists are learning in real time as in the same span that the general public's learning about something in real time. It's hard to um, convey everything and just be clear when not everything everything is unknown, right? Um, but I do think there was some really good utilization of social media and um, we have so many online platforms now and uh, just like t even Twitter was used, right? All these social media sites to disseminate information and we do have access um, to get information quickly. And I think that's a benefit. Um, it can also be a detriment, but I feel like it was utilized more positively when dissemination, uh, information was being disseminated. You know, one of the things I saw is that it seemed like, as far as Twitter, you know, specifically to Twitter, it seemed like academia and research uh, seemed to really jump on Twitter and utilize it quite well. Um, oddly enough, the people, the field practitioners, you know, seem to be oddly absent as well as as well as the cognizant authorities too they you know outside outside of specific research uh researchers and uh academics in this and uh again it's it, it seemed like the narrative was i'm not gonna say one-sided but it, it just it, it was it was challenging and again it's still snippets and sound bites so that, I, I think that's a difficult point um now on the the third point we uh highlighted here was uh, the physical, some of the physical aspects of climate change. So um, I'll let you both take a shot at that and, and discuss some of those those uh, points. Doug, I'll, I'll throw it okay. to you first. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that the obvious one that comes to mind is, is you know, heat stress um, as the global temperature warms. But I, I think it's also important to consider that the, the global average temperature warming is not really what's driving that. It's the, you know, the local climate because, you know, one one and a half degrees Celsius is not going to put someone in the heat stress, but um, you know it's the local heat waves, the 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 increase in the hot days and heat events over the over the summer times usually that I think um, are really driving that concern. And one thing that I think is interesting with that is we've started to see a patchwork of state regulations come come about due to heat stress. Um, you know, largely I think because there is not a national standard to control heat stress, especially among outdoor workers. And so a lot of states have started to take it upon themselves to enact regulation. Um, and so I think that's something that as as OEHS practitioners, we really need to be aware of is um, which states have the rules, you know, what the standards are within each state and, you know, how that affects us, especially for, you know, national organizations. Um, and then another one is severe weather, like Sadie mentioned earlier, you know, flooding, hurricanes, um, heat waves, you know, we can expect to see more severe events that are farther from the average. Uh, and, you know, so that's something we need to continue adapting to and planning for. And, and you know, what, what's interesting, too, is you you, uh, you touched on the point that it's really it's the local environmental uh, situations happen the outdoor physical things um yeah because you have like you know floods floods uh some of these severe storms tend to be somewhat localized regionalized around the planet um so it's not like we just have a catastrophic event that goes around the entire planet suddenly mm -hmm. um and uh again uh i would assume that some locales some areas are going to be more uh regularly hit with these you know these big events than others i mean unfortunately most of the population lives near a major body of water 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously uh, sea rise is a major, major concern, you know, and what's happening with that. A- any other points on that, Sadie, that you can think of that would? Yeah. I mean, in addition to heat stress, we also have, of course, cold stress. So more um, regions are experiencing severe cold weather. And so they're maybe getting storms they're not used to. They're not sure how to um, manage sudden cold um, if they have a lot of outdoor workers. So that's another issue. And then um, increase in UV exposure for outdoor workers um, due to the thinning ozone layer. So battling with that. And We'll be back after this. Here's our consultant, Sarah. She's always looking for ways to grow her network and increase her business, but advertising is expensive. There are lots of competitors, and sometimes she has trouble finding the right audience. Luckily for Sarah, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA, offers the perfect low-cost solution, the AIHA Consultants Listing. This listing is the perfect resource for consumers and businesses, and especially for those in need of highly specialized and qualified industrial hygienists. Every year, AIHA sends the consultant's listing to thousands of decision makers nationwide in a variety of industries, including legal, real estate, trade associations, academics, hospitals, and all levels of government, including most federal agencies. It's also readily available online through their website. Sarah had no idea the consultant's listing was such a valuable low-cost resource. Now she knows getting into the directory makes perfect sense to better her business. It didn't take long before Sarah found her network expanding and she was even pulling ahead of her competitors. The AIHA Consultants Listing, your link to building a larger network. post this to both of you what can uh oehs professionals uh and what can they and what should they be doing to plan for uh and address the hazards that we're going to be facing uh with climate change and as these these obviously as you both mentioned will be evolving hazards it's not just one set of parameters that stay the same you know going forward this is this is a constantly evolving crisis so how how do we deal with that say did you want to go (laughs) i i think um Educating yourself as an OEHS professional is probably the first step of just um, going through. um, One of the things I've been working on with the AIHA is the Climate Change Adaption Task Force. And so just highlighting different areas that climate change will impact uh, workers overall. And so if you have knowledge of what could come in the future, you could be better prepared to start saying, okay, where are the resources where I can find this information and how do I protect my workers in the future? Um, so finding out what potentially can come. Doug, maybe if you want to talk about modeling. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's one great thing that we're seeing as, as climate change becomes more of a concern. There's a lot more research and resources being put into trying to figure out what's coming. Um, so I, like one resource that I think is really great, which is a government resource, is heat.gov. Um, they have a lot of really interesting, you know, weather prediction tools on there that I think can can be really useful for predicting, you know, in 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now, what is this area going to look like from a, a heat stress perspective and start understanding, you know, what I can do now, you know, whether that's 
purchasing resources, whether that's getting additional training, whether that's, um, you know, maybe even changing the way that we do work to adapt to those, you know, those challenges. Um, as we all know, planning and budgeting something out over a decade is a lot cheaper and, and easier than it is to budget it out for next year. So I think taking those little incremental proactive steps now um, is going to save us a lot of, you know, time and, and money down the road. Um, so I also just want to say, I think following the kind of typical IH model of, you know, anticipate, recognize, evaluate, control is is the way to go. You know, start figuring out what what the challenges are going to be for your region and then um, learning how to recognize and evaluate those. I mean, thermal uh, stress issues in particular uh, seem like they could be the most severe on agricultural workers, right? The gig workers. And these are people that are not typically employed by, by Fortune 500 companies with big health and safety programs. Mm -hmm. you know, these, are, these are people working day to day or, you know, week to week or month to month, season to season, um, and, and probably are not the ones that are, you know, that are covered by really thorough environmental health and safety programs. So how do we address that? In previous shows, this topic's come up before. Um, any thoughts on how, you know, how as a, as a community, we can, we can do better with that. I think um, finding partnerships between, you know, industrial hygienists and safety professionals and community organizations. Like personally, I think that's something that we do okay at, but, you know, we have a lot of expertise in this world, but I think it doesn't often leave the, the gates of, you know, the employee employer relationship or, you know, the work site. Um, so I think finding ways to get involved in the local community, which I think a lot of us do through our local IH chapters, um, but, you know, finding community centers that might cater to those populations that, that work um, in those fields. And, you know, finding ways to conduct education because, you know, even making someone aware of the hazard, I think, is, is the first step to mm -hmm. empowering them to protect themselves, assuming they have the, you know, agency. I mean, as far as the, as far as the planning and budgeting, um, is it both of your opinion that, um, at least at the sea level, that we're, you know, at least recognizing this issue, you know, and, you uh, more willing to, to actually allocate, you know, budgetary, uh, you know, resources to, to deal with this? Yeah, I think we see change happening. I mean, policies being made at every level, um, starting at the White House. And then there's been a large push um, for the Army to have, like, a focus on climate change. There are corporations that are putting out um, a lot of information of what they're going to do to change and what they're, um, like, climate goals are. So it's, it's looking positive, I would say, overall, change is happening. Yeah, I think something um, important there, too, is uh, to make sure or to try to be involved in those conversations, because I think, you know, we see a lot of, I think, organizations talking about how they're, they're working to get, you know, maybe carbon neutral or prevent, you know, climate change, or at least, you know, minimize it. But um, I feel like you have to dig a lot deeper to find what they're actually doing to mitigate the impact of their own, you know, operations and their own employees. So I think getting involved in those conversations um, and making sure that's incorporated as a part of that strategic plan is, is really important. 
Well, I mean, cer certainly organizations like AIHA are, you know, getting involved in that. But are you suggesting that um, professionals should be dealing with it in the, uh, on the more of their local level with their own companies and within their own communities? Is that they should definitely be included in those planning meetings and those long-term uh, strategy meetings for sure. So both of you uh, are very passionate about this topic of climate change, as am I. Um, I, th I think it's uh, it's an area that we really have to, you know, step up and start start making uh, very substantive change on how we're how we're behaving on on this planet. Um, so some closing thoughts. I'll, I'll toss it to both of you, Doug. I'll go first with you. Um, you know. Final, final point here? Yeah, I think a, a final point is, is kind of um, pointing people in a direction to get started. You know, some something that's important to me with, with my work and my career is emergency management and emergency response. And I think that comes into play a lot with climate change, especially when you start looking at uh, emergency action plans. So I would say a good place to get started to understanding how these hazards are going to affect you and what hazards um, are probably going to affect your area is, is looking to your you know, county or, or if you're in a large metro area, the city, you know, emergency management department or emergency planning commission, most of these organizations put together um, some type of, you know, risk assessment or risk management document that where they've already kind of done this work. They've, they've looked at what the primary hazards and challenges are in the area. And so I think that's a great place to start to, to start to understand, you know, where you may need to start growing that literacy. Excellent. Sadie, I'm going to toss it to you. Sure. Um, yeah, I just hope people are empowered. They don't get down um, and uh, don't want to take action when it comes to climate change because there are so many solutions out there. And there are, like Doug said, so many resources already that people can reference and they can find and they can start implementing change if they have a passion for it or um, if they even just care a little bit. It's something that's going to affect us all long term. And so um, making proactive efforts every day starting now, it's going to be beneficial in the long run. Excellent. Well, Sadie, Doug, thank you so very much for joining us uh, on this episode of Healthier Workplaces. Um, super important topic, uh, one that um, obviously is uh, ever evolving and ever challenging, but I really appreciate your efforts on this and keep up the good work. So that's our show for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Until next time, I'm Bob Krell. Thanks again for watching and stay healthy.